Well, good morning, church, and happy new year to you. Um, and Alan, to Tejuan, great to see you, brother. Great to have you here. It really is wonderful. Well, out of um, a thousand people who attempt to become Navy SEALs, uh, 70, 70 to 85% do not make it. Uh, many fall out because of injury during the training, and that training 24 weeks and one of the worst weeks known as Hell Week, uh, but they're, they're 20 hour days. They begin at 5 a.m. with runs, and sometimes they'll run up, up to 200 miles a week. Uh, they swim in frigid water. They do 800 to 1,000 push-ups a day. They carry massive logs and navigate rigorous obstacles in sand, water, and mud. And all this while being yelled at <laughs> by instructors. Um, well, always nearby in their training is the bell, the brass bell. And if somebody rings that bell three times, uh, they're done. That's what they're communicating. And, and there's no questions uh, they just, they leave. They return to food, sleep, rest, comfort. But apparently when somebody is, is making their way toward the bell, um, the other, uh, you know, potential Navy SEALs start yelling, uh, don't do it. Stick at it. Look how far you've come. We return to our series in Hebrews with a reality check that the Christian life is not easy. Uh, there is opposition and there, therefore, is need to endure. Uh, a new wave, apparently, of opposition is stirring, and some are being tempted to ring the bell, so to speak, uh, to bail out, to go back to some easier life. Maybe that's in Judaism or, or some other life. Uh, at least it wasn't you know, a life that was full of persecution for following Jesus. And Well, several times in the letter to the Hebrews, our author basically yells out at his, his audience and thus, by extension to us, don't go back. Don't ring the bell, so to speak. Don't give up on Jesus. And we have another one of these warning cries here. So let's listen to the cry, but also to the encouragement that he gives to endure. Let's hear God's word. From Hebrews chapter 10, beginning verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, 
which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The Christian life, while a life of rest in Jesus, is still a difficult life. And scripture does not sugarcoat this. Uh, It does not promise a life of ease and comfort. There's hardship, there's opposition that can wear us down. And there's a real temptation to ring the bell, uh, bail out on Jesus, and return to some perceived better, safer version of life. But Hebrews makes clear that there is no better, safer version. There's no refuge outside of Jesus. There's only refuge in Jesus. And so once again, our author warns about rejecting Jesus and the need to endure. And he does so by telling us to look out, look back, and look forward. First, his warning, look out. If we go on sinning deliberately, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Now, what is this sinning deliberately that that our author warns, you know, look out? Uh, Well, in a way, you know, are we all in trouble? (laughs) Because who has not done things in defiance of God? I mean, we all have, but that's not what is being focused on here. Uh, this is not some sudden lapse into sin. Uh, this is not our, just our common struggle with besetting sins where we oh, mess up again, we repent, and we struggle with it before God. That's not what this is talking about. The deliberate sin here is after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that's the gospel, but it's a heart, it's the posture of heart that says, I don't care anymore about Jesus. This is high-handed, decisive rejection of Christ. Look at, look at verse 29. This is sin that tramples underfoot the Son of God. That is disdain for Jesus. Grinding his name and his character in the dirt under our feet. And sadly, we see popular preachers who, who write books on the Christian life who then bail out on the faith. And it's not that they fade into obscurity. They kiss Jesus goodbye with a vengeance. There's animosity toward Jesus. They start organizations teaching others how to deconstruct their faith in Jesus. See, that's what it looks like to trample Jesus underfoot. They also profane the blood of the covenant. In other words, they mock the blood of Christ. They call Jesus' death worthless, useless, idiotic. And so they outrage the spirit of grace. Now, this may be what Jesus means by sinning against the Holy Spirit. But consider this, you know, God's grace comes to us how? It comes out of his great love for us. Love that gave his son in death that we might be saved. God loved us to his own harm. This is the spirit of grace. And to belittle God's love as a worthless thing, what an outrage. And shockingly, these people are those, verse 29, who were sanctified. Whoa, does that mean they were Christians who lost their faith? No, um, sanctified, it's it's a 
It's a broad word in a way, but uh, it can mean people who are just set apart. And Paul actually uses this word in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 13, when he speaks to Christian wives about how their unbelieving husbands are holy, sanctified, same word, okay? And the unbelieving wife is holy or sanctified because of the believing husband. And the children are holy, sanctified. Now, to be holy or sanctified doesn't mean that they're saved. I mean, Paul goes on. 1 Corinthians 7, 16, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So sanctified can mean set apart with God's people to receive blessings from God, truth, love, goodness that comes to his people and to those associated with them. Well, back in Hebrews, our author says of these who were sanctified, those who were exposed to the blessings of God in Jesus, who then rejected Jesus, how much worse punishment do they deserve? Worse punishment? Yes, because of who Jesus is. In verse 28, we get an argument from the lesser to the greater. Moses and the law is the lesser. If someone set aside the law of Moses, uh, they were punished without mercy on the basis of you know, two or three witnesses. Now, Jesus is better than Moses. He's the greater. The new covenant Jesus brings by his blood is better than the old covenant. Jesus is God's greatest and final sacrifice, the one that actually does take away our sin. And so apart from Jesus, there is no sacrifice that, that is effective. So if we, re we reject Jesus... I mean, we got nothing with God. And a worse punishment is, is before us, and the punishment is grim. I mean, this is one of the most terrifying passages in Scripture. God is not playing around with us when it comes to sin and Jesus Christ. Vengeance is mine, I will repay the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And what we're talking about here, what the author's talking about here is hell. Fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That is hell. And, and it's not that God's gonna cast someone there while they scream, no, no, don't do this. It's what they chose. I mean, in life, they said basically, God, I don't want you, and I don't want your Jesus. I'll take my life and make my own way. And God simply says, okay, have it your way. But you need to understand there is no other way. There's only two alternatives, eternal alternatives, and that is life with God or life without God. And hell is life without God. It's separation from God forever. And you know, I just have to ask, is that what anyone here really wants? I mean, that is insanity. It is a death wish to reject Jesus. So what to do? Repent and turn to Jesus. You know, under the law of Moses, um, if you committed certain high-handed sins, there was, there was no sacrifice you could make to atone for those sins. They were capital offenses. And two of those sins were adultery and murder. 
In Psalm 51, David recognizes that he is guilty. He committed both adultery and murder with Bathsheba and her husband. And so in Psalm 51, knowing he deserves to die and there's no sacrifice he could offer, what does he do? He cries out, have mercy on me, O God. And God did. How? Because God was looking to Jesus, who would pay for David's crimes, even his high-handed sins. It is a high-handed sin to reject Jesus, but even in that, there is mercy. If we repent, we turn to Jesus, we fall into his hands. There's only fearful expectation of judgment in the hands of the living God. Now, does the author of Hebrews really think his audience is going to go off the rails and abandon Jesus? Well, no, he doesn't. I mean, look at the last verse in this section, verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Okay, his warning is real and deadly, but I think it kind of serves as a parental warning. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, we parents, we tell our kids, don't go in the street. If you go in the street, you'll get hit by a car and die. And, you know, kids, they don't want to, you know, get hit by a car, and so they, they stay out of the street. Well, the warning is real, but it serves as a guardrail to keep kids safe. And so with this warning, it's real, but our author has great hope that his people are going to stay true to Jesus, but still, the Christian life is not easy. They're getting beat up for Jesus. And so there's this call for endurance and to help us endure. You know, besides looking out, he, he, he now moves on. He says, okay, look back and look forward. We tempted to ring the bell and to shrink back on Jesus, shrink, shrink away. Instead, look back on how far you've come by faith in him. He says, remember what you've already endured for Jesus. And he sees three marks of their endurance. Their suffering, their compassion, and their joy. Aren't those interesting marks of endurance? Suffering, compassion, and joy. Their suffering. You enjoyed you endured a hard, a hard struggle with sufferings. This is verse 32. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. In other words, family, friends, colleagues turned on them and publicly humiliated, insulted, mocked them. They were made to look stupid for following Jesus. And for some, it turned violent. Some were beaten. You know, cancel culture is nothing new. Christians have regularly been canceled, ridiculed in the public eye, written off as stupid, weak, narrow, judgmental. But for some, it got worse. They were thrown in prison. And by the end of the first century, we don't know the date of the book of Hebrews, but uh, it's on the, the latter end of, of that first century. But certainly by the end of the first century, people were required to honor the, the Roman emperor with a loyalty test. People had to offer a pinch of incense on a, you know, a little fire, and they had to offer a pinch of incense to the genius of Caesar. That was an act of worship. Now, the Jews had a pass on that. 
but not the Christians. Now think about this. If word gets back to Rome that the local officials of some town are allowing a group of people whose religion is not sanctioned by by the Roman government, they're allowing these Christians to disregard the genius of Caesar, that town could have their funding cut off. So Christians were bad for the economy, perhaps, in some of these towns. And worse could happen as Rome applies its pressure to conform. And so Christians were hounded to comply. And if they didn't, they might be fired from their jobs. They might be excluded from the marketplace. You see, the marketplace, uh, usually they were walled areas, and the entrances had these little altars. And that's where you offered the pinch of incense to the genius of Caesar. And you couldn't just sneak by. You were called out. Can you imagine an altar in the front of Ingalls? And before you could go in and shop, you had to offer an offering. Without access to the markets, these Christians had little or no access to food and to the necessities of life. And by the end of the first century, Christians, they were viewed totally as as bad for business throughout the Roman world. Christians were spoken of, our brothers and sisters in the first century, they were spoken of as cannibals because they ate the body and blood of Jesus at the Lord's Supper. They were spoken of as haters of humanity. Well, doesn't that sound familiar? Haters of humanity. Why? Because they called people to repent of sin. And they were political liabilities with their claim that Jesus was Lord, not Caesar. And so the pressure's mounting and some are thrown in prison. But you stood by them, our author says. You didn't keep your distance. You had, here's the second mark, compassion. Compassion on on your brothers and sisters. This means they probably brought them food in the prison. They stood by them. They identified with them when they were mocked and beaten. It is good. You loved them. That is a mark of enduring faith. And then when their property was taken from them, joy. Verse 34, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because you knew you had a better and lasting possession. If you've ever had anything unjustly taken from you, the only way, the only way you're going to rejoice is if you have confidence that you have something better that cannot be taken away. And Christian, we do, and it is Jesus Christ. When we left our former denomination, we were um, sued for everything we had, our, our church building, our name, uh, our finances, uh, our resources. And I and, and some of you were um, deposed by the uh, opposing legal team. And in my deposition, you know, I sat at this table and the, the opposing lawyer sat on the other side and he had a stack of files about 12 inches tall. And he just kept pulling file after file and, and asking question after question uh, from those files. He did this for several hours until he finally looked at me in the eye and he said, you have lied to your people. You are going to lose everything. And I responded, no, I have not lied to our church. I've said, I think we have a good case, but in court, anything can happen. And we may very well lose everything. And I've told our congregation that in light of Hebrews 10.34. What's Hebrews 10.34? 
You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. And I said, if we lose everything, it will hurt, but we will rejoice because we have a better possession that cannot be taken, and it is our Lord Jesus Christ. As soon as I said that, this lawyer just kind of fell back in his chair, and he mumbled a few things, and then, and then said, we're done. And with that, we got up, walked out, and when I was in the elevator, our lawyers, one of them said, I've never seen anything like that. I said, like what? He still had four inches of files to go through, and he just stopped. I've never seen that before. Now, who knows why? Uh, you know, maybe he thought I was a fruitcake. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> but church, you, we have faced this. The confiscation of property, and there's no doubt that although it would have been tough, we would have rejoiced. Because we have Jesus Christ, and if him, what is there that is better? Well, are you tempted to draw back from Jesus? Maybe there's pressure at school, pressure at work. People think you, 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 you're stupid looking because you follow Jesus. Perhaps you're being, you feel threatened with loss or you know, friends or, or worse. Endure by looking back on how you remained true to Jesus, valuing, loving, treasuring him in times before. Was, was he worth it then? Yes. Is he worth it still? Yes. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, verse 35. And confidence here is not confidence in ourselves. It's confidence in him, Jesus. He's the better possession. Your confidence in him has great reward. And here's where the, our, our author now turns, saying basically, look forward. Jesus is coming again with great reward. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You know, the reward, the promise. This, this is not something we've earned. It's Jesus, the better possession. It's being with the lover of our souls in his kingdom. And he's coming the author quotes from Habakkuk, yet a little while and the coming one will come. And Habakkuk was writing that when God's people were about to lose everything to an invading army. Everything. And you know, you remember how the book of Habakkuk ends. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vine, the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off and there be no herd in the stalls. In other words, we are a desolate people. We have nothing. And here's what the author, here's what Habakkuk says. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Amen. He knew that God was coming and God would take care of him and them. Well, we have the better possession Jesus Christ, he is the coming one and he is coming. Look forward, keep your eye on, on him and his coming. Now some have said, well, you know, to be heavenly minded makes us of no earthly good. You know, our head's always in the clouds. But actually, unless we are heavenly minded, we're not gonna be of any earthly good. 
Because confidence in Jesus' return, this is what helps us endure the difficulties of this life because we know they're not the final word. Jesus is. Confidence in Jesus' return keeps us from despair when our stuff is taken. We know we'll get it back and more. Looking forward to Jesus' coming is what keeps us loving others. When they, when they get hurt, we know Jesus is going to right all wrongs. It's what helps us sustain, helps sustain us when we get canceled because of our so-called weird, narrow views. So cancel us. We have a better possession in Jesus, and no one can take him from us, and no one can take us from him. Christian, where is your faith being tested right now? Where do you need endurance? And we put a, we put a card in the, in the bulletin, and uh, you might write on that card, um, maybe there's an area of your life where uh, you're just, you're tempted to shrink back into doubt, confusion, despair, maybe to, maybe to bail out on Jesus. Where's that area where you need endurance? And maybe write that up, but then present that to Jesus by looking back and looking forward. Looking back on how far you've come by faith in him and knowing he was worth it then. And looking forward to what's coming in Jesus. He is still worth it. You know, the point of endurance is not stirring something up in us. The point of endurance is by faith keeping your eyes on Jesus. You have him. The better possession. Amen.